Good morning and welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you here. As always, if you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do on officehours.global. Our first hour is always a general discussion of production and IT related topics and where we answer audience submitted questions. That means you're involved. So hopefully you'll know the process by now and how to get your questions in. That's really what drives our entire discussion. Uh, the second hour is typically a deeper dive into some specific topic. Today, we're talking about the talking camera and it's an idea I had many years ago about how to decide whether or not you should change a shot once you start it. Uh, sometimes videos, movies, and everything else are made with single shot by shot by shot. In fact, most movies are made that way. But occasionally you want to move the camera, do pans and tilts and dollies and things like that. And so we'll talk about um, a way I came up with to decide for myself whether or not a move is warranted. That's in the second hour. First hour, always just question and answer. So let's dive into that. Mitch, what have we got today? Thank you, Bill. Our first question uh, drops in from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. Andy asks, opinions on the THX Onx DAC. That's a digital audio converter. Is the THX worth the added coin when listening on headphones? And since you've started, you get to continue, Mitch. It's up to you. Here we go. Um, THX on anything uh, makes it better somehow. I'm not sure exactly how. Uh, in this particular uh, question, um, I'm going to set some reference points here. I, yes, to answer your question, it does make it better. THX Onx uh, DAC, the THX part is using uh, the THX AAA um, algorithm, which basically uh, works on intermodulation distortion and crossover distortion and the specs indicate uh, 20 to 30 or 40 dB of improvement. So the answer to the question directly, it does improve it with the added coin. Uh, this device is about $130 on Amazon, but to put it in perspective, um, I have another device that I use for monitoring with my headphones that uses the very same THX al algorithm, and it costs $3,000 uh, made by Benchmark Audio. So the question is, um, what is the difference in price for? Um, I think it's uh, all up to the perception of the listener. But there's some people out there that really enjoy their headphone experience versus a near field or a uh, room experience listening to sound. And the THX sort of sprinkles some pixie dust on all of it to make it better. And Courtney has some thoughts. Well, I was just going to show a picture of it. That's the THX Onyx DAC, and it's... Uh, Sorry about that. And it's $129 on Amazon. Uh, it's just uh, kind of a dongle. It plugs into USB, but, uh, and it's, I've always pronounced it Onyx instead of Onx, but uh, that's just me. Hmm. I had yours. an Onyx ring once as a young man. So maybe that has something to do with Maybe it, it sounds like Onx once it comes out of your headphones through the D. The I'm just glad they didn't name it model 1138. That would have been way too confusing. Uh, let's move on to the next question. Next question is from Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. In office hours, what is the commitment of the panelists to research and find answers to producers' questions if they don't know the answers? For example, by using Google and whatever search tools they have or calling their lifelines. <laughs> I sometimes wish I had a lifeline here on the show. That would be awesome. Let's start with Courtney for the discussion of this. Well, Paul, I just proved that by showing you the <laughs> THX Onyx that I looked up online and got a price for during the last question. There you go, Mitchell. And uh, I just proved it by uh, checking whether or not Courtney was right on spelling it, uh, uh, pronouncing it Onyx versus Onx. 
and Courtney is correct, uh, according to Google. But uh, all uh, kidding aside, yeah, we're, we're kind of uh, very uh, generalist as a panelist in answering these questions. We may have some either direct or tangential uh, knowledge of the uh, question, and we do our best to answer it. Occasionally, we try to fortify uh, our uh, our memories with a little trip to Google. But uh, for the most part, we should be answering these questions based on our experience and our expertise. Chris Fenwick. Uh, I totally agree. Um, if it was just a matter of looking up stuff on Google and regurgitating stuff, then we just become an analog Google, and that's kind of dumb. What, what I always find the most interesting about the discussions that happen here is the tangential, ten, tangential, Tangential. The edge, You're the, right. Tangential. You, You're the perfect. edge stuff uh, and the way things interact. Um, this is the ultimate, you know, nerd Google, uh, nerd uh, water cooler. And to be able to discuss things and see how things interact um, is super interesting. That's, that's, I think, my favorite part of Office Hours. And Harshid. This place to me is a learning place. Uh, so even to be on the panel, I ha keep engaged to the questions, um, even though they might not be in my uh, ballpark, so to speak. So going to go research something for some, you know, a question specifically does take away from you being engaged in the show or being a panelist. So I kind of refer to let's listen to the question. If you know how to explain it, you might. You could also go back and research it and then provide information in after hours as like I usually do in case if that's something really important that someone wants to know. And Peter Sargent. Oh, I'm sorry. Mitchell's in, in between. Mitchell? That's quite right. I, you know, this is a good example. Uh, the previous question where we were talking about a specific device, which I have no knowledge of other than it was quoting that it had THX in it. That was the, uh, the Onyx device that uh, uh, Courtney has corrected me on pronouncing. Um, and I had, to, I had to check in with Google to see exactly what the specs were. And that's when I found out that it's using the, uh, the very good THX AAA uh, algorithm, and I was able to talk to that because I have that in my system. But without Google, I wouldn't have known that detail about that device, which I have no knowledge of. Peter, want to want to sneak in? Well, I mean, this clearly points out some of the comments that uh, Alex makes a few times every once in a while, which is if the questions come in early enough, we as panelists can start researching them ahead of time if we need to do some research and get something queued up. And the other thing is, I think in our various areas that we know something about, Mitch just expressed one. He understands the value of THX and the sound algorithms. I'll take in chip design, but I know how to ask the question of Google if I'm unsure of the exact wording or the exact answer. I know how to ask the question of Google, which is an important skill in its own right. <laughs> yeah, I, I resonate with what everybody said here. I know for myself, it just depends. If I'm doing something active in the show, I have very little time to research. So if I'm uh, the questioner, if I'm reading questions, if I'm hosting or whatever, I have almost no time to research things. Occasionally before the show, if a question comes in early enough, and I think I really know something about it, I'll try to make sure that my knowledge, my memory is accurate. The things, you know, and we all have, there's areas that we 
can feel reasonably expert in because we've done them for most of our career and we really understand that. There are things that we are familiar with from being around the industry for a long time. We may not be experts in that, but we can probably have a reasonable opinion. And then there are things on the periphery. And I personally, I just try to stay away from topics that I'm on the periphery of. Um, the only exception to that is occasionally we'll get very few questions. And we know that the show needs to continue to run. And I want to make sure that somebody, everybody who puts in a question has at least a shot at getting some sort of a useful answer out of it. So I may go a little beyond my area of true expertise to try to help somebody because they're coming here for help. That's my impression. And we'd like to do at least something for them. Okay, that's too much talk. Let's go on to the next question. But Next question, question is popping in from Douglas Carmichael. The latest Mix Effect release offers multi-view display and switching right from your iPad. There's a link to it. Not having switched more complex show before, when would a hardware panel be more suited to an event? Well, I think that anybody who does switching a lot probably prefers hardware to doing all their switching and software. Although now that the software switching is so prevalent, that may be changing a little bit. Mitchell, you had some thoughts on this. Yes. Uh, the, the the thing of it is, is that most of us would prefer a uh, tactile button, particularly for doing something quickly, because if you have an iPad, you can't just reach over and start smacking away at it and hitting touch buttons in the right order or procedure. Uh, a tactile button is going to give you a much more uh, better location and uh, ability to switch things. My muting button is like that, because I like having tactile buttons instead of mousing around to mute and unmute my microphone. So I say a hardware device, check. Yeah, there's also the, I think the piano player uh, idea, which is even though you have 88 keys on a piano, a pianist who has studied and practiced knows exactly where their, their hands need to go instantly without looking or thinking about it. I think hardware does encourage that. Chris Fenwick had some thoughts on this. Uh, yeah, I mean, the the real key to this question, I think, is the, is the multi-viewer. The fact that the multi-viewer <clears throat> is in the software is amazing to me. I don't know how Andy is doing that, but I can't imagine there isn't some sort of a delay. And back when I used to switch live shows, I can remember being like literally yelled at by, by directors because I would be like, you know, two frames after the call. I had a director once tell me, um, you're pressing the button on the T of take. Can you press it on the K instead? <laughs> so the, the amount of delay that that, I just, I think it could be a problem. For general easygoing stuff, I'm sure it's great. There you go. So that, that gives you an insight into the mind of somebody who does switching at a high level. Um, you know, they are kind of musicians in their own way. Rhythm is as important as anything else to making a show really sing. Let's move on to the next question. Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas asked, Descript lets you edit video with artificial intelligence voiceover. You can remove words like, you know, um, globally. Does that put traditional video editing on the sidelines? Uh, no, let's start with Courtney. Well, I wouldn't think so. I haven't used Descript, uh, so I don't know how intelligent it art its artificial intelligence is. Um, you know, when you edit something like an interview, you frequently want to cut to the other person listening while the person is answering the question right in the middle of their answer. 
just to to shake it up a little bit to keep it interesting. So I don't know if it's built with that kind of intelligence. Uh, so I would have to see. I would think I hate uh, I hate editors who just cut 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 on the dialogue. In other words, this person speaks, we cut to them. That person speaks, we cut to them. That person speaks, we cut to them. They argue with each other, we cut to a two shot. You know, uh, and and cutting on the beginning of the line, I don't like that at all. So. I'm not sure how much intelligence was mixed in, but I think it would lead to a kind of a mechanical edit, which would be uninteresting to me and annoying. Mitchell. Paul, sorry, haven't had a chance to try it out. Uh, I'm very interested in how it deals with two people talking at once, one doing um, the other person actually answering a question. The other thing that would be a tough thing is if they're saying, and the word is um, pink, that would be an easy edit, but if the if if the word is uh, pink, and they they bridge right into the word, and the um is part of the uh, the following word, I don't think any algorithm is going to take care of that. Chris Fenwick, uh, artificial intelligence doesn't exist, and it won't. And, and and the reason I know this is, I've said this before, when I buy toilet paper on Amazon. I see ads for toilet paper in every web browser for the next week. Like they should be able to figure that out until they figure that out. Artificial intelligence doesn't exist. Also, uh, the minute we start doing editing on computers, uh, every editor will be, Oh wait, we've been doing editing on computers for 30 years. No. Uh, anytime something gets automated or simplified, all it does is it takes the chaff off the bottom of the pyramid and it puts those people out of work. If you're afraid of your, um, your job being supplanted by some sort of technological advancement, then you need to be the very, very, very best at what it is that you do. I mean, ask, uh, you know, uh, Bill and Mitch, you know, they both do, and Courtney, probably. Courtney, you've done pro VOs, right? These are, these are great VO people. I can open up a text document in my Mac and I can type in a paragraph and I can say speech, like, like, like read it. Does that put them out of work? No, it does not. So just be really good at what you do and you never have to worry about the computers taking over until they do. <laughs> Mitchell. I, that is an excellent answer, Chris. And uh, I, I guess I agree with you because it's true, but um, the, the never thing, thought you'd um, see the day, right, Mitch? Yeah, never thought it would happen, but here it is, and uh, it's a, gl a global moment. Um, it's interesting because I would, I would rather edit myself than have a uh, some kind of algorithm trying to figure out what I was doing wasn't doing because I have certain things. For example, I can spot my ums and breaths and things like that on a waveform pretty easily without having to listen to it. If an AI was going there making interpretations about the proper timing. It, it's not that it just removes the um or the breath or whatever. Is it does it maintain the timing of the read? Uh, it may come the next sentence may come in too quickly or too late. There's a lot of stuff that goes on that takes the gray matter between your ears to uh, uh, properly make the edit to make it sound natural because there's a tempo to it. I'm not sure those algorithms are up to that. Courtney. My bigger fear is that the AI algorithms in audio processing these days will have the ability to turn Pee Wee Herman into James Earl Jones or uh, Morgan Freeman, you know, and with a punch, punch of a button. So, uh, you know, there goes the voiceover career. 
<laughs> I think there's a lot of context to this. I mean, there are certain times when I think a machine could do a, a, a decent job of doing some kinds of editing. And that is to say, often I'm editing, uh, let's say, a large piece that's driven by narration. And I just I'm going to take out all the ums and ahs because it's really a radio edit that I'm trying to achieve the smooth flow of thoughts. And any um or ah is just wasted time that we don't really need. There's the other kind of editing, though, and they cross over a lot, which is aesthetic editing. And so let's say you have a, a dramatic piece and the shot, a very important shot, is uh, her walking away from him. And because we've told the story in flashbacks, you know, this is the last time they're going to see each other and you care about the characters. And so lingering on that shot as she walks away may be the perfect thing for the drama of this piece. And I certainly don't want an algorithm saying, wait. That's black space. Cut it short so that she walks away and then we cut to the next shot. And that's completely in against the aesthetic of a good editor making a decision on behalf of the audience. The audience needs time to process what they just saw. Let me give them some space here so they can do that. Uh, Mitch, you had a last thought? Yeah, I agree, Bill. I think that makes a lot of sense. And if, if you'll allow me to have a Fenwick moment here... Um, I'm afraid that if I let an AI edit my uh, voiceover, that I may have to go back and fix it, what the AI did, and that might take twice as long as the time I would have saved if I just let the AI do it and walk away. I would never let it make all those decisions. So AIs don't exist. My name is Mitch. I am on <laughs> office hours. Glad to meet you. <laughs> I think we've had Siri have an appearance here. Uh, Siri, do you have any other thoughts? No, that's dangerous. I'm not going to do that. Please. Um, yeah, you know, there are a lot of nuances here. It can, you know, automation. I remember when um, auto exposure and things like that came in and we tried the first one saying, that eh, it's not quite working so well, but then all of a sudden it got better and it was useful. And I can see circumstances where these things can help you maybe in the way they sometimes do it now, which is let the auto algorithm give it a shot. You as the editor, take a look at it and you have to decide for yourself, should I start from where that did it? Because I it did fix some things that I don't now have to spend my time fixing or no, that's terrible. Let me hit the undo button and do it manually. Uh, they're tools. And if the tool can help you get your job done faster and more efficiently, great. But that should be up to the human editor to decide one way or another. It's never going to completely supplant it in my mind. Next question. Next question in from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. Any good headphone recommendations? I currently use the Sony 7506s, but I wonder if there's something better for editing. Thank you. Straying into religious territory, but Mitch is going to start us off here. Um, nine out of ten editors use the Sony 7506s. There may be better headphones out there. The question is, do you want to spend two to $3,000 for an esoteric headphone that one day you're going to take it and plug it into the wrong thing and boom, there goes your money. Chris. Oh, I'm sorry. Courtney. Courtney. Um, a little bit better than the 7506 was the 7509, now discontinued, replaced by the MDR 7510, which has a little bit larger diaphragm, uh, 50 millimeter instead of 40 millimeter, which was the 7506. So you might try that. Give you a little bit better bass response for high diff. Uh, Chris Fenwick. Uh, I prefer the V6. Um, it's the classic one. It was first released in the eighties. It was, they tried to get rid of it in the nineties. There was a giant pushback in the odd, uh, pro sound community and, uh, Sony actually brought it back. And then they, then all those people retired and they 
moved on to the 7506 series and all those. But uh, this is an older pair of the M MDR V6s, uh, nearly impossible to find, like really hard to find. If I could, if I had, if, if I had two or three more, I'd put them in the closet and wait for these to die. I've replaced these earmuffs 10 times probably. Yeah, a lot of us are in that circumstance. Mitch, you had another thought? Yeah, I can't let this go by. Only Chris Fenwick can make a conspiracy theory out of headphone selections. <laughs> well, no, it's, it's, you know, this is semi-religious here. No, 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 it's really true. I, I mean, you can, it's on the internet, so it must be true. But the, <laughs> the, the story goes, they tried to replace them and there was a total pushback in the pro sound community. And they, and Sony brought them back. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's fact. Read I'm it on the internet. I'm going to weigh in on conspiracies. <laughs> Thank God, Chris, just for, its, for what it's worth. I'm going to weigh in on this as well. But some people value headphones for different things. Uh, some people want full range accuracy, right? I want the rumble of the kettle drum to sound like there's a kettle drum next door to me. And I want everything else to be absolutely flat and accurate as if I was standing next to or in the midst of these musicians listening to them play. And that is a that is a lovely thing to achieve. Uh, other people do not want that. And I am one of them. I have been with Sony 7506s for probably 25 years now. And the reason is, to my ears, they have a pronounced peak in the upper mid-range, which is centered right around where human speech is. 99% of the time that I'm using headphones, particularly in the field, I'm monitoring dialogue. And it is mission critical for me to hear problems with that dialogue. If uh, an actor, actress, somebody out there, or even just a, a mic is messing with my ability to hear a splashy S or a fluffed T in dialogue delivery, I can get back and have to fix a problem that I didn't hear in the field. So I love the fact that they are speech-friendly headphones. Their, their EQ curve is very speech-friendly. So I will constantly use them. You also get to know your headphones. Uh, listening hours and hours and weeks and days, you can start to understand how your transducers in your listening system have different things. I, I, you it might remember that when I started here, and for many years, I would put on my 7506s to do the mic checks. And then over time, as I started using this particular IFB system, my brain started understanding how to listen a little differently so I could hear problems in the low end that this doesn't have. I could just, when I hear something, I know that that's a problem. And so I've been able to now do that monitoring on this system, but it took me six, eight months to get used to the sound of these so I could do that. So I do think you get used to headphones too. Uh, both Courtney and Mitch are going to sneak back in on this. So Courtney, start us off here. Um, yes, Chris, look, a pair of MDR V6s. I have three of them, but I will point out. New inbox? <laughs> not, not new inbox, heavily used ear pads replaced at least three times. Get an alarm uh, system. You said that on the air. There are going to be people trying to steal them, I think. Uh, but look at the look at the uh, uh, chart here of the difference between the V6 and the 7506. The V6 on the left here, exactly the same uh, diameter, um, exactly the same impedance, 63 ohms, uh, exactly the same sensitivity, exactly the same power handling capability. Uh, the only ah, difference nickel -plated. is the nickel-plated stereo plug That's what versus does it. the gold-plated stereo plug. That's what does plug. it. So, uh, you know, that's the only difference according to Sony. 
<laughs> See a nickel guy or a gold guy. <laughs> That's fabulous. Uh, I've enjoyed this message. Mitch, you're going to bring us home on the headphone. Yeah, I just want to point out to uh, your V6s say professional on them like my 7506s do. Yeah, well, there you, you go. You've got an extra sticker. <laughs> you got it. It's marks- got to be better. Yeah. All right. Well, this was fun. Uh, the answer, I think, is, you know, I'm not sure better headphones are going to make you a better editor or a better listener or whatever. Just, you know, get used to what you're using. And uh, if you find something you like, stick with them. Don't I? What I wouldn't do probably is change and put a different set of headphones on every time I'm doing something different, unless it's I want these really flat, accurate, perfect, fabulous, expensive headphones for listening to, you know, classical violin repertory at home i i i I respect that and then you use your work headphones as work stuff anyway let's move on we've been here long moving on uh paul terry wallace from austin texas says on the insta 360 link what is the difference between slow and fast tracking auto tracking and ai zoom hdr versus 4k and Courtney Gooden, as a Insta360 owner, will help us with this. Courtney? I did, and I was hoping to demonstrate it today, but right as I was trying to get on into the panel this morning, uh, something brought down my computer, and I have a sneaky suspicion it was the Insta360 drivers. Uh, so I'm afraid to plug it in again during the show to show you the difference between slow and fast tracking. I did try it out, and the fast tracking, you know, if I moved... Uh, slow, you'd move and then it would move and you'd move and then it would move. Fast tracking, it could keep up with you as you moved around uh, pretty fast. But it's a little bit jarring because it's so fast and it comes to a stop very quickly if you stop very quickly. So it's not as, uh, uh, you know, you don't have a smooth in and a smooth out of the gimbal moves. Um, AI zoom. I have not found the AI zoom yet. Uh I didn't know that was a thing. Uh, maybe that's a setting I haven't located yet. I found the artificial, you know, the manual zoom and the way to, uh, if this is what you're calling A, this is how you zoom in. It recognizes the gesture. This puts it into auto tracking. Oh, luckily, I don't have it turned on. I'm not using it at the moment. This uh, puts it into zoom. You got to go loser. <laughs> and then when you go up, it zooms in. And when you go down, it zooms out. A better AI gesture, I thought, would be like this, where you could go like you know this and show it the frame that you wanted would be a better zoom. I think but on the camera, easiest- that loser becomes joker because your thumb's pointed the yeah. wrong way. Yeah, yeah. Just if you use both of them, you're framing, you see, just like a director does. The camera starts close on our ingenue and it pulls back. Um, it's the typical, the typical rangefinder uh, uh, gesture. But uh, I haven't found the zoom. The easiest zoom I found is either pinch zoom, which works if you have a touchpad. You can kind of zoom in as long as you have the control open. And there's another problem with that. Uh, because if you have the control open, with the image in it, you can't be fending that image to anything else other than the control itself. So on Windows, that's a problem. On a Mac, it's different. Courtney, is the sensor 4K or HD? Or it's a 4K. It's a 4K sensor. And I switched between 4K and 1080p, and I couldn't tell the difference. But uh, so maybe it's scaling uh, down to 1080p. And so I didn't see the difference then. And does it have HDR? And have you tried it in that mode? It does have HDR and everything got a little bit washed out. I, I kind of like uh, if you're going in as a, um, you know, as a webcam, 
since everything you know that comes in as a webcam gets stomped on by windows and by the you know all the software by crushing the blacks and trying to make you look and by you know the artificial make my image look better in zoom checkbox um when you go to hdr it doesn't understand that it just gets kind of milkier and washed out a little bit in my opinion so i turned it off Interesting. All right. Well, hopefully that was enough to take care of things, uh, Paul. And let's move on to the next question. Greg Gibson in Washington, D.C. Sony FR7 shipped on Monday. Any early adopters? Mitchell, you know Sony pretty well. Any? Uh, have you heard anything? I'm the Sony boy, fanboy. Anyhow, um, my friend who uh, runs a, uh, uh, a rental house in Philadelphia says that uh, they bought a bunch and uh, they're already getting many requests for it. So I guess that is the best early adopter knowledge that I can give you. But as Alex has said, we expect these uh, uh, pen tilt zoom uh, cameras to be the next big thing. Nice. Okay. Well, keep us up to date and we will keep coming back for more information. Next question. From Dan Huber in Erie, Pennsylvania. Is the Road Go dual wireless still a good choice for small remote kits and might be used with just an iPhone in a rig or into a laptop with a camera on a tripod? Courtney's going to help us out here. Uh, I looked at both of those and chose the DJI mic, which is very similar to the Rode Go in function. They're both 2.4 gigahertz, two lavalier, uh, two little transmitters, and one receiver that uh, sits on top of your camera and has uh, an output either over a mini, mini uh, phone plug, uh, 3.5 millimeter plug, or via USB as a device. And, uh, but I liked the uh, DJI has more features and it, and it'll also record locally. I don't know if the, I don't know if the road go will, I don't think they can. Uh, and you can, you can turn the re local recording on and off inside each of the transmitters. The transmitters are smaller um, and a little more compact. They're narrower and don't, aren't as obtrusive as the, uh, as the road goes are. So I'd, I'd stay and they're about the same price. So I'd go with the DJI over the road go. There you go. Uh, next question. Next one in from me. And my question is, what's the worst CAPTCHA you've endured on your way to a secure website? I'm sad to say I may have been responsible for this question this morning. Mitch, go ahead. Tell us. What's you, going. you are indeed, Bill. You brought it up. Now we have to suffer through the results. And um, the, these CAPTCHA things, sometimes sometimes they're easy. You know, uh, we'll click all the images that have a car in them. No problem. But I got around. I got one one time that said, "Click all the images that have a turnaround in them." I'm like, "Turnaround? I mean, that's not even a typical phrase we use here. Maybe that's is somewhere else." I know what a turnaround is for a uh, XLR cable, so I didn't see any XLR cables. Anyhow, I was dumbfounded and I had to redo it. Courtney, yeah, turnaround's another name for a gender changer, and if they showed pictures, you know, you'd you'd have to question each person in the. Uh, in the shot, if you're going to answer that question. But my my worst one is uh, uh, find the palm trees. And they have all these shots of California. There's a palm tree in almost every shot. <laughs> Got way in the background. There's a little bitty palm tree on the horizon. Yeah. yeah. Any palm I get trees it wrong in the Hollywood every sign time. shot. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I did cause this this morning because I was trying to pop up something on my phone and I got into captcha hell, which is to say that it kept asking me. And, and now how about this? Mostly it was show me every square that has a crosswalk in it. 
And there were just so many weird options. And sometimes it was like everything on the bottom would be one big crosswalk, but then there would be these tiny things and you're squinting and going, is that white thing in the background a crosswalk? And do they want me to know that or not? And so it's hard. I, I came to the resolution or the resolve that uh, on a laptop or a big screen, captures can be pretty easy to go through. Once you get into an iPhone or something small, these same grids can be very difficult. And I think it put me through nine rounds of CAPTCHA before it allowed me to get in and do what I needed to do, which was extraordinarily frustrating. So did it, I'm, did it start asking for palm trees in a crosswalk? Uh, you know, that would have been even worse. I, I understand why they do it, but it drives me nuts. Next question. From Vic Hernandez in Springfield, Missouri. What would you think about having a designated office hours time lord? Responsibilities would be making sure all posted times are accurate for their local time zone. For example, the daily email refers to U.S. daylight time when they're in standard time. I would uh, be a plus on that. But the question is, do you get a uniform? If we're going to make somebody a time lord, I think we should have them have a uniform, something that looks like a really good Park Avenue uh, doorman. Uh, or a badge. They need or a badge. Or a ba badge, yeah. A cap. Something, uh, some sort of designator, uh, Mitchell. First of all, it's a timey-wimey thing, so uh, good luck with that. <laughs> uh, I don't know if, if that's in our future or not, but it's an excellent question, so keep bringing it up until someone gives you a responsible answer. Let's go to the next question. David Brady in New York, New York, Japanese telecom, KDDI, uh, announced that they will start using Starlink to provide service to all customers. Are they putting too many eggs in the one basket? There's a link to the one basket. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Nobody, oh, there you go. Peter Sargent has raised his hand. Peter? Whoops, you're muted, Peter. So actually, what, if you dig down into it, what they're doing is providing it to commercial and government customers and in, 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 in remote locations and is this the way they can get service to the remote locations they haven't said to all customers that would be uh i i would find that amazing if they if in considering that the japanese telephone company would be supplanting all of their service with starlink interesting courtney well since most phone companies can provide you with voice over ip i would think it would be an easy thing to offer since the starlink is an ip connection over the internet uh, to offer voice over IP through a Starlink connections to the places where they haven't run any wires or any type of cable connection to the internet. Given how much fiber is underneath the streets in, in major cities in Japan and along the, uh, the telephone, the, uh, railroad tracks, it's, hmm. it's really remote locations. Ah, I don't know. It's interesting. Mr. Musk has so many things going on right now that are gigantic in, uh, initiatives that I'm a little leery of uh, putting my business stuff. But that's just me. And maybe he has the bandwidth to run all these massive things. I wouldn't wait for a tunnel to come through with a boring company, though, because I think he's otherwise engaged. And and at, at some point, how many giant businesses can any human uh, manage effectively? But who knows? Maybe he has the right lieutenant crew and can do it. Let's move on to the next question. Chris Widener from Lafayette, Indiana, asks, Google begins refunding Stadia hardware purchases made on the Google Store. Is there anything anyone is aware of to use this hardware after Google shuts down the system completely? John Preto is going to help us with this. I'm show. just being informed by our producers that they're refunding the software, but not the hardware purchases. So I, I'm not sure 
what the what's going to happen to your hardware there, Mister Widener? Huh. That's it's it's sad to see these things come through. I have a big. Uh, big splash in PR and then kind of go away. And it seems to be happening uh, quite often these days. So um, buyer beware always. Let's go on to the next question. Our local gear guru, Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas asked, the THX Onx DAC is really cool if you have a phone and some headphones. Is there a similar product that is a headphone and microphone and keeps the phone charged up and is office hours quality? Boy, you're asking for quite a few things there. I don't know of any. I do know that there are other uh, similar little dongles for iPhones. Um, I was trying to think of who makes the, there's a venerable old company in audio stuff that has a very good little uh, audio interface for lightning uh, that has a digital audio DAC in the, in the, in line with the cord, but I can't think of its name right now. Yeah. I'm, I'm spacing on it. So sorry about that. But um I guess call, come back another time, Paul. Maybe I think Alex does a good little bit with that. So uh, next time he's on the show here, maybe ask and he might have an answer for you. Let's move on to the next question. Scott Halver from Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Is there any advantage in using Black Burst as a reference with Blackmagic uh, Pocket Cinema Camera 6Ks, no reference input, ATEM Constellation 1 MEHD, bidirectional SDI HDMI converters, a hyperdeck and a partridge in a pear tree. <laughs> Mitch, you were going to start us off, so go ahead. I will try. Um, there's no point in trying to stick a reference input on something that doesn't have it. Um, but reference, even a black burst, is uh, better than nothing because it tends to allow all the devices to be in synchronous so that when you're switching between them, the screen doesn't flip. Courtney Gooden. Yeah, what Mitch said. Uh, yeah, if it doesn't have a reference input, then you can't use Black Burst or Tri-Level Sync. Tri-Level Sync is the other thing that's used since we went to high def uh, as a uh, reference signal. Uh, although, uh, if you you can pretty much use any stable SDI signal that's of the same resolution as the camera as a reference signal, uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be Tri-Level Sync or Black Burst. So you can. You can use that if you don't have a sync generator. But the idea behind a black burst generator is you have a common clock that you're distributing to everyone. So everyone slaves themselves to that common clock. And as a result, all the horizontal and vertical lines are in sync with the horizontal lines and the vertical frames are in sync with each other. So when you cut, it doesn't have to renegotiate and retime the signal in and buffer a frame. So you don't lose a frame when you're switching between things. Yeah, I think Courtney uh, explained it very well. In the old days of analog television broadcast, if your sync got out, uh, you'd see this little wide band kind of travel up the screen over and over again. And that is called the vertical interval. And it's the area from the first pulse of the signal down through all the data things. And then the picture starts and goes on. Uh, we don't see that very much anymore. And I've never seen it on a phone or anything because most of the sync is digitally controlled. But Courtney explained it well Um Starting on the starting on the right timing is critically important, particularly for mixing signals together. So at some point, you have to synchronize two signals coming in if you're going to do dissolves and other effects on two channels of video. Let's move on to the next thing. And it's from Brian Carney in Wheaton, Illinois. Looking for a good footage stabilizer plug-in I can use in Premiere and be able to adjust the clip speed at the same time. Mitchell has some thoughts. 
two different things. You couldn't use one plugin unless it's designed to do that. But for example, uh, with Sony cameras now, it used to be that you would take the footage in with the metadata, um, put it in Sony Catalyst, and then ex export uh, the stabilization data that you could then bring into uh, Premiere. Uh, now there's a plugin made by Sony that uh, does all of that from the metadata directly in Premiere. So I got your stabilizer part covered. Uh, as far as speed, uh, there are times there are time remapping software that can do that within Premiere also. Yeah, I think all the major NLEs do these things. Just remember that if you're stabilizing footage, the amount of shake that you're trying to get rid of, the more shake there is, the only way you can really stabilize that footage is to blow it up so that um, if you have a jerk to the left and normally the boundary on the left side would slip over, if you blow the picture up enough, you can eventually get the whole thing full of pixels. Well, that means the more shake there is, the more it's going to have to expand that initial footage, and it can often look pretty lousy. Uh, so the, the key is to shoot things as stable as you can. This, I think, why uh, all these little gimbals and things like that are so popular. It really takes footage that could have been really difficult to stabilize. And even if it's not perfect, it'll get you so close with a stabilizer, sometimes good enough to use. But even if not, a stabilization algorithm on it will not have to expand it very much to be able to uh, process it afterwards. Courtney and then Mitch will have some more thoughts. Courtney? Yeah, you probably won't find anything that does both at the same time because one has to be done before the other. You have to time stretch first and then stabilize because time stretching adds or removes frames and stabilization looks at the difference between one frame and the next frame and which which direction the pixels moved. So uh, if it doesn't know that you're going to be adding frames, I think you would have to do stretch the time first and then apply the stabilization. Perfect sense. Mitch? Uh, just so you know, you have the option in the Sony cameras that uh, process that Bill is describing of changing uh, by zooming in or punching in a little bit on a 4K image actually can be done if the sensor is over or under sampled inside the camera. It can do some of that stabilization and still output a 4K image without um, doing something digitally to it. So just to give you a heads up. And that's why the metadata that goes with that shoot uh, is important because it's telling the software, uh, I did this, this, and this, maybe you can do a better job. Yeah, Mitch is exactly right. And one of the things why the cameras that have higher rasters, the Blackmagic 6Ks and there's 12Ks and other things out there are highly prized because it gives you so many pixels to work with that image stabilization becomes easier if you're just trying to output a standard uh, 4K picture inside a 6K sensor. You got a lot of room to work with. Uh, oh, Courtney, no last thought. Yeah, I just had uh, Mitch brought up in-camera stabilization, but uh, a lot of for good cameras that have good lenses and large di and large sensors, a lot of that is OIS uh, optical image stabilization, which actually has little motors in the lens that move the elements of the lens to stabilize it uh, as you're shooting. Uh, uh, the cheaper cameras like a GoPro that don't have uh, that many movable lens elements in them uh, use electronic image stabilization, which we were talking about earlier, where it blows up the image and then moves the image around within that 4K. Yeah, so there's a lot of technology there. Hopefully you'll find something. Uh, but, you know, in Premiere, you're going to have tools to be able to do a lot of it there. So good luck, and hopefully it works to your satisfaction. Let's go to the next question. Sarah Doyle in Falls Church, Virginia. Tis the season on our production crew holiday gifts. What catches your eye to gift to your on-site production teams? Oh, Mitchell, you have some thoughts? Cash. 
which great. <laughs> well, that's it's the universal gift. There's also a lot of tools that I think people, depending on your budgets, uh, you know, I've always been surprised in the original days. There's there's companies out there that do tchotchkes, do giveaways, gift. There's there's major companies that uh, all their business is about is employee gifts. Uh, it used to be that they were all pretty cheap and kind of disposable, but lately I've seen more and more. Uh, decent things in there. You, know, you may find things like Leatherman and, uh, you know, uh, phone holsters and all sorts of things that are actually useful. If nothing else, the traditional uh, water bottle or water cup, there's a lot of things. So it depends on the level you're looking for, but there certainly are plenty of sites out there that are uh, dedicated to doing nothing but imprinting of giveaways for corporate. I think people love those little things. Uh, we just call it swag in general. The things that you get as you go to a trade show that are given to you, then hopefully you find some use in your life after that. Courtney, you had a thought before we finish? Yeah, I've got a lot of Dexter knives uh, in my collection. <laughs> I would get every year. Is that a little too on point for that show? <laughs> Not to me. Oh, <laughs> sorry. Couldn't resist. Let's go on to the next question. I don't know if I can. Uh, another question in from Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana. A product blurb has a new feature, ASP Arden Streaming Protocol, a smarter protocol that sends your stream data to our cloud to fully protect against quality loss, like buffering, frame drops, or glitches from the network fluctuations. Seems improbable. Uh, and I don't know if anybody knows the ASP Ardent streaming protocol well enough on this panel to have an opinion on this. Nobody has weighed in. So this may be one of their uh, our swing and a misses today. If so, Chris, please hold on to your question. Oh, Chris Fenwick will, will take a shot at it here. Chris, I know nothing. In. I know nothing about this product. But uh, Chris, I will say this to you. Um, I think one of the things that we do often in our industry is we read, we read into something. So we read... Uh, features of a product, and in our mind, we're thinking, I really hope it does this. And so then we read those, that description again, and some, somewhere in our mind, we put features into products that don't actually exist. And we do that so that we have a, a justification to buy something that we don't, that isn't going to work. And, and I see people do this often. I do it myself. I'm like, well, it, if, if it does this, this, and this, then it must do this. And the must do this feature is the one I really want it to do. But keep in mind, if it actually worked, they would probably say it. And the real problem is, even if it doesn't work, quite often they say it. Uh, I, I really, I've gotten to the point, uh, old curmudgeon guy, I, I don't believe anything until I actually see it work. There you go. Voice of experience, because I've been in the same circumstance Chris just described. Let's move on to the next question. Chad Lafarge in Columbia, Missouri asks, uh, Reality Scan was released this morning after an eight-month beta. Any chances of a lab by those panelists who've been able to beta? Uh, nobody has weighed in on this one either, Chad. Sorry, your uh, reality scan. Uh, you know, the, the problem here is we do this in real time and uh, most of us are getting ready for the show. So if something was released this morning, few of us have probably have time to even uh, know that it exists, let alone uh, have any experience using it. But with an eight-month beta, I, I can see why you're asking the question, Chad. And that makes perfectly, perfectly good sense. Maybe somebody on any average panel might be uh, well enough connected to have heard about it, who to know somebody who is on the beta team or something like that and would have some initial day opinions. Sadly, today, it doesn't look like it. So uh, 
give it a couple of days, uh, come back, ask the question again. And I'm sure by then uh, somebody here on our crew will know enough about it to have an opinion. Next question. From Chris Fenwick from Emeryville, California, and right here on our panel. Since we don't all have a brother who's a Steadicam operator, let's take a look at this great behind-the-scenes clip from The Star is Born. So, Chris, Roll you've been talking about that this morning in the pre-show. So, so tell us, give us yeah, a background. it's super interesting. I just stumbled across this thing last night. If, if anybody knows, the movie is from about, I don't know, four or five years ago. Uh, Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper. And they, they sing this song. Now, in the movie, it's all... Uh, very cl- shot, very close up. Uh, this Image Factory Productions, they put together this uh, BTS clip of actually shooting of the scene. And it's super fascinating because there's a handheld guy, there's a steady cam guy, and you get to watch them from the wide angle work. And it, it, I, well, I'm not going to play the music for copyright stuff, but uh, it's really, really interesting. If you want to go watch this, I put the link in the uh, Mukana. I guess I could put it in the chat, whatever. I'm sure you could find it. Uh, it's called alternate editing of with different takes. Also, um, as an editor, uh, Bill, uh, uh, Mitch, you'd probably notice this. Uh, if you watch it, you'll notice that this compilation reel here is from different takes of the performance. At some point, you'll see the handheld camera right on Gaga, and then all of a sudden on another take, it's like, oh, whoop, now it's the steady cam. So uh, very fascinating to um, watch it work, watch them. And, and every once in a while, like this, at this moment, they cut into the shot that they actually used from the film. So uh, I would highly recommend people take a look at it. Super interesting. Sometimes these behind-the-scene things can teach you a lot about how it actually works. And that idea, you know, you think you're watching a performance, but this was probably a whole day's worth of shooting to capture this scene. You've got multi-cameras going. You've got multi-performances. You know, roll back the one. Let's do it again. We're going to switch cameras so we get different different shots. Um in a major motion picture like this, and it, it, this depends on the the director of photography and the director working together to decide how much coverage they need. But it wouldn't surprise me if they didn't have hundreds upon hundreds of potential angles and takes to piece this scene together with. And um, you know, this is a major, major endeavor. It's also interesting. You're seeing Steadicam operators and handheld operators, and each one of those might be shooting there. But if the director wants a tap, you see all the attendant people around that. Uh, sometimes if they're tethered and they have a cable back, but they're probably using all wireless uh, back to video village so that the director and or director of photography can watch each shot as it happens in real time and make sure they've got the coverage they want. It, these are huge productions, just complicated and brilliantly done. Yeah. And sometimes it's just a spotter to make sure somebody doesn't, doesn't yeah, and, and boy, or possibly unsung photo, because yeah. I know every time I'm shooting, I can get into a circumstance where I'm about to step off a stage and fall into a pit. I've been there in my early career and it was out somebody to let me know because you're just in the moment trying to execute the shot and you're thinking of nothing but getting all those things right. And yeah, you can hurt yourself very badly. I've fallen off of things and I've, you know, hit my rear end the, to the ground more times than I can tell you. Yeah. The comedian Kevin James has also done a series of things where he's a sound guy and he there, he does one of these with uh, this clip where he's a sound guy, and they keep cutting to him and he's wiping Simple. the tears out of his eyes. And, yeah, it's very funny. So also yeah. worth watching. Hard work, and you know, I, I don't know. I, I noticed the the camera operator. You know, and it, he's almost like grimacing. It's hard work to to keep track of keeping a steady camera, frame the shot perfectly, and uh, 
those guys spend years physically training themselves to be able to hold that many pound camera on a shoulder uh, or a steady camera. Oh, it's yeah. pretty easy. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Only someone who's never tried to do it would say that. Mitch, you had some thoughts. Yeah, have you ever uh, talked to Garrett Brown, the inventor of the Steadicam, and his first shot, I think, was uh, running up the steps uh, the Art Museum for Rocky. Um, it does take its toll on your knees. So a lot of, uh, you can see, old Steadicam operators don't retire. They have their knees replaced. Well, knees, upper body, the, the twisting stuff that happens. I mean, you've got this thing strapped to your torso, literally, and it's not normal to have that much weight. You can see he's wearing a belt. There's an arm that is attached to the middle of the entire steady camera. It floats, but that is a whole bunch of weight that you're pushing around and moving, even if it's perfectly balanced. I, I remember the, my longest day of doing any kind of steady cam work like that was probably four hours. And at the end of the four hour days in pieces, not four hours contiguously, but like, you know, a half an hour shoot, change locations, do another half an hour. And at the end of the day, I was just beat. And just so many micro muscles that I wasn't used to using. Not, not an easy thing. Courtney? This question probably should have been in part two today, hour two today for camera moves. But uh, yeah, the steady cam operator and the handheld cam operator, it's tough on your knees. You'll look at both of them. They'll have their knees bent to take a lot of the vertical pop out of the uh, shot. Steady cam helps remove some of that. And no, it wasn't the shot in Rocky that was the first steady cam shot. It was the shot in Bound for Glory, where uh, Garrett Brown started on top of a standing on a crane platform. And he came down on a crane shot, then stepped off the crane and walked through the crowd and up to Woody Guthrie. Uh, that shot was the first steady cam shot. You but, are uh, correct, sir. But the uh, uh, the thing, the, the most difficult thing in doing a shot like uh, the one Chris showed is when you've got two handheld cameras in working at the same time in the same shot is the choreography, making sure that a camera doesn't get in B camera shot unless it's uh, something that where there's supposed to be cameras there and they can kind of sneak in as an on-camera camera. But uh, yeah, keeping out of the other camera shot, you have to organize that in advance. And a good camera operator knows that, okay, a cameras on a 30 millimeter fixed focal length, and they know pretty much the field of coverage of that film, of that camera lens. So he can kind of glance out of the side of his eye to see where the other cameraman is to come right up to the edge of the frame uh, so that he can get a good shot and they can both get a good shot without getting an each other's shot, which is the big yeah. problem. There's also, a, I want to... Oh, go ahead, Chris. I was going to say, at one point, there's a point where Bradley Cooper walks over to the, uh, to the wing to get Gaga to come out and sing with him. And if you watch the wide shot carefully, you can see that the Steadicam operator is following him over right as she is walking up. And yeah, the choreography is absolutely not coincidental. It's very tightly choreographed. No, and blocking and all the rest of those things have to be rehearsed and performed. I also want to note in that shot where you were, we saw there are two gigantic camera rigs, four or five people out there, and you're asking these two actors to act, you know? And specifically, I was noticing the camera moves in front of Lady Gaga's face and she's looking essentially at the audience. And I don't for a moment believe that she's looking ever into the camera even though the angle is very close and it would have been so easy for any actor to go, wait a second, what's that? And, you know, good actors have to be physically aware of everything about what they're doing at the moment they're doing it. So they don't break character and, and blow a take by doing that. I'm looking directly into the camera and that's unnatural. 
Uh, it's just there's a lot of stuff going on to make uh, make really good, compelling content like this. Um, thank you, Chris, for bringing that to us. That was fun to watch. And um, I think we're going to go off on to our next question now. And Chris Widener from Lafayette, Indiana, has our next question. YouTube app on iOS seemed really buggy yesterday and crashed where confirmed by Google with a fix pending. When these kinds of bugs happen, is it worth doing YouTube embedding as a backup since it can affect the view stats? Unfortunately, I know very little about how the YouTube works at that. This is another one where Alex would be a great resource for us since he a resource for us since he does a lot of this kind of thing. Unfortunately, nobody else has raised a hand, so we're gonna have to pass on this one, Chris. So you've got that's I think at least two strikes for you today. I'm sorry about that. Hopefully we won't have another. Let's move on to the next question. Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas asked. How many uh, YouTube videos do you watch in a day? Ballpark on average? And what are a couple of great YouTube videos you've seen lately? Chris Franwick will help us out here. If I had to choose between YouTube and television, I'd pick YouTube. Uh, I watch YouTube every time something is rendering on my computer. Uh, a good one to watch, the one we just talked about, Paul. Uh, um, ballpark, 100 YouTube videos a day. A lot. Wow. I watch, a, I watch a lot of YouTube. It's, it's super inspirational. And frankly, uh, I'd rather watch a cat playing the piano than most of the stuff that's on TV anyway. <laughs> and, and obviously, there's a lot more than just cats playing the piano. Courtney Gooden. Yeah, I watch a lot of YouTube a day. Uh, I got a, ever since I got this um, app that runs on my uh, Fire TV uh, called Smart TV, which eliminates all the advertising, even the in, you know, even the uh, mentions and, you know, uh, the standard opens that are on the top of all regular shows, you know, where they have their standard open animation, it'll jump over that stuff automatically, no commercials. And that has made my YouTube viewing go up quite a bit. And uh, I look at, you know, answers with Joe. That's good. I look like, you know, uh, a lot of tech, uh, how to, uh, videos and a lot of, uh, repair videos. And I, I find fascinating. There's some really stupid, th like electronics repair school. Look for that. It's this, uh, little guy, Ukrainian guy. I'm not sure. Armenian, Romanian. He has a very funny accent and I'm not sure where he is. Cause he mentions, uh, prices and dollars, but he repairs laptops and things like that all day. And he just does this stream and all of his, and it's like stream of consciousness. There's no cutting, there's no editing, and he's figuring it out as he goes. So you watch him repairing laptops and he's talking about what it does and what the problem might be. And so you kind of work your way through that problem with him. And so it's kind of interesting to go on, on that journey to see if he can repair it or not. Yeah, it, it, it to me, I, I love it, but I have to stop myself because it is so, I mean, there's millions of hours of content out there every month that just gets fed. And the algorithms are sometimes weird. I, I, I want to like fire up a VPN now whenever I go on there, because I know that if I get distracted, oh, that's an interesting thing uh, that's a jazz combo doing uh, 1920s music. So I'll watch it thinking I'll see this once in my life and never come back to it. And the next time I come back to YouTube, there's 34 1920s jazz videos waiting for me in my feed and I have to get past them because it was just a passing fancy and I didn't really want that to be um, part of who they think I am but that's going to be very difficult to do but yeah my feed gets gets I call it kind of infected with my mistakes as I looked up something that was curious for me for just a moment but not 
core. Is it really a mistake though, Bill? Or is it just uh, yeah, the real you? It's a good question, but you know, no, but I have a friend who's an executive in, in one of the large uh, Japanese electronics company. And he sent me once a, I think it was K-pop video. And I thought, this is really interesting. It's a, it's a Japanese uh, band that does hard, hard rock. And so heavy metal with three young ladies, Japanese, he sent me the link. I thought, this is really charming. And I wrote him back and said, that was great. And then for weeks, I had just so many K-pop and, and Japanese popular things. Just every time I looked on the feed, I went, oh, there's another group from Japan. They think I want to soak myself in this. And I wanted to see what he sent me. That's all. So I don't know. It's ah. a, The algorithms confuse me totally. You're a K-pop fan. Yeah, well, I, I, some of it was really good. Some, but then it started looking all the same. Oh, look, they're, they're doing exactly. But that's probably my lack of appreciation and understanding the nuances. But that's not something I wanted to be 50% of my feed. Uh, thank you very much. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, or Courtney, did we get to? Yeah, we got. Do we get to your comment? Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, Japanese would hate you calling that music their music k-pop yeah you're absolutely right that's korean popular music i should be more specific about that uh was it blackpink i'm trying to think of the name of the other group that was not out of the korean side that got me first into the male you and then the next thing i know they connected me to k-pop and the next thing you know i'm watching all these people backstreet boys are back <laughs> there you go. well it's just the algorithms trying to decide what I'm trying to do rather than me having much control over it. That's why I said it's about time to fire up a VPN anytime I go on any of those big services and make sure that they can't follow me because Lord knows what it's going to do to my regular feed. All right, next question. In from Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana, I'm still trying to find my perfect portable production table. What do people think of this link? Weight is high, but... Uh, and uh, Mitchell's going to help us, Mitch. He ain't heavy. He's my table. Um, while you're in Home Depot, check out the Husky uh, for $300. Uh, it's a wonderful hardtop, uh, uh, crankable uh, tabletop. But uh, how portable it is, I can't honestly say. Yeah, I've had a couple of them over the years. I will tell you, um, I think I mentioned the other day on the show that I used to write a lot and I was traveling a lot at the same time. And when I was on deadline for the articles uh, for the magazine, I would find myself often writing in airports. And I had a couple of tables that that served me well. The most successful one was a very lightweight, uh, single top, a very thin top that you screwed onto the top of a small folding stand. And it would, the whole thing collapsed was so small, I could literally put it in my briefcase along with my laptop. And I use that a good little bit. I still have it in there and I still use it. I also had a, a tabletop that was plastic and had four legs, four aluminum extension legs. It was a little less stable, but if I had to go on location and I could throw a piece of gaffer's tape around it and had a little more time, uh, those four legs made a much more stable surface for putting something like uh, my bag on that I was going to reach in to get stuff out of. So I've had a couple of those. Uh, you have to be careful. A lot of the inexpensive ones are pretty cheaply made, but they can be useful. Chris, you had some thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Chris, I would recommend if you're going to carry around something, uh, carry around something that can help you carry around something. Um, I would get a mag liner with a tabletop add-on. Um, you, you put this thing on the top, you put all your gear down below. It's sturdy. It'll survive a nuclear holocaust. Uh, you can run over cockroaches with it. Um, it's super strong and you can carry your stuff and, it, and you have a nice surface on top. That's what I would do. There you go, Chris uh, Courtney. 
Well, the best one that I found, uh, unfortunately, isn't made anymore. I don't think it was from a Cos- Costco, not Costco, but you can buy them at Costco. Was this one over here that has this uh, three-quarter? Uh, it has the back wheels. It's a hand truck, so it fits in your. It falls flat, fits in your car very easily, and it has this mode where it goes three-quarter. And I built a little fold-flat shelf that uh, comes in here and comes out horizontally when it's in this mode. That I put my cases on and then the angled part here i have um a, a part where uh, i can you can carry these type of uh, cases fit in uh right to that uh, if i could get that picture back again it would be lovely but you know it's awfully hard uh, but unfortunately last time i went to costco they replaced it and they don't have this little drop down piece on the back it's now only goes in two modes horizontal and vertical so my my days of building the little adapters and i've built several of them are over uh well uh okay we're gonna try to get through these two more questions real quick two three three more questions real quick let's dive to the next one paul terry wallace from austin texas says what's the best wellness and fitness christmas gift Ooh, ooh, that's a tough one um, no one weighed in on something like that. Uh, most of the wellness things that, uh, that I think are critically important, like a good office chair, um, things like that, 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 you know, because we do sit as editors so much, they're pretty expensive. So I, you know, if you've got a lot of money and you can get into some of the infrastructure, things like that, uh, great. But I can't think of anything off the top of my head that's in that category that you know, everybody's just so different. And what I need may not be somebody. what somebody else needs. Uh, so I have a hard time doing that. Let's go to the next question. Chris Widener, Lafayette, Indiana, asked, the YouTube Top Trending Videos list just came out. And has the list surprised anyone? Mark Rober is the list again, unsurprisingly. And maybe he's top of the list. Uh, Mitch, what, what are your thoughts? As long as it doesn't have cats on it, I don't mind. Okay, you're going to be an anti-cat day for, uh, there we go. Last question before we get to our second hour here. Paul Terry Wallace is back from Austin, Texas. Lumen has a handheld hardware device with an app that looks a bit like a vape. A built-in sensor measures the level of CO2 produced to determine metabolic fuel usage, whether the body is using burning carbs or far for fuel. Not sure what that is. Uh, will you get this? I probably won't, but I think in every uh, serious exercise physiologist lab, there is probably that uh, exhalation tube hookup. I've seen people, you know, running on treadmills, and that's one of the ways they determine your metabolic efficiency. Uh, the fact that they're kind of trying to go into the consumer-ish space with something that can do that, I'm not at all surprised. Courtney, you had a thought? Well, during COVID, uh, I bought uh, a clip-on pulse oximeter, which uh, will read your pulse and tell you how much your blood oxygen you have, which is a good uh, indication of how healthy you are as far as your respiratory system goes and your heart goes. Um, so and that's good a good choice for uh, something like that. And it doesn't tell you how much CO2, but how much oxygen you have. Yeah, I think uh, we're, they're talking about having some sort of reader and then, then the watches coming up about determining some of that stuff. So it's obviously something a lot of people are interested in and want to want to make a part of their lives. All right. I think it's time to make our turnover here. We've gone about six minutes over, but that's fine. Uh, so today's discussion and, you know, this was originally designed to be kind of the video uh, day on um, Thursday. And uh 
I toss this out in the the panel that determines what our show topics are going to be out. And somebody latched onto it and said, yeah, we should do that. And we should do it pretty quickly before we get into the big next year stuff where things might get crowded. So the talking camera is what I subtitled this. And let me explain to you why I did that. Um, I used to write those articles for Video Maker, and every month I had to come up with a different topic. And I remember we were tossing around ideas at one point decades ago when somebody said, well, how do you know when it's how, – how do you know how much – pan is too much pan. How much zoom is too much zoom? How do you determine whether a move, any kind of a move is a reasonable move or you're being excessive with it? And so I thought about it for a while and I wrote an article called The Talking Camera. And basically it's built around this premise that every move you make, every camera move you make as an operator communicates with your audio audio audience, whether you understand that or not. So it's reasonable to ask you yourself what am I saying by making this move? And there are a whole bunch of traditional camera moves. In fact, there are five of them uh, that I'm going to talk, and then one that's a little not as traditional. And here they are just in uh, kind of overview. Pans, tilts, zooms, which is technically not a camera move, but we'll talk about that anyway. Trucking, that's what it's called when you move right or left on a dolly, dollying in or dollying out, and pedestal, which is camera up or down. Those are kind of the traditional ones I learned as I was coming up in the industry. And so you've got these moves at your disposal. What And, and my question to myself was, does each of them mean something? And can I be consistent about what they mean? And if I do that, can I help the audience understand my subjects more? And I'm going to dive into this first question here because I want to put a little break and give people time to think about it. And then I'll come back with uh, analyzing each of those moves. What does a pan mean? What does a zoom mean? What do dolly moves mean? And can you figure out why it's a good idea to use them at a particular time? But TJ, let's go, let's go to the first uh, question from TJ first. From TJ Asher in Minneapolis, Minnesota, how do I develop my eye to help see the start of a shot, the end of a shot, and the transition from start to end? I have a very hard time seeing a moving shot since I come from a stills background. And TJ, that doesn't surprise me at all. I had the same uh, issue. I was lucky. I actually started in video first, but when I developed my eye as a still photographer, I, it was interesting that I had to really reorient my thinking because everything I thought was, I'm going to start on this framing, I'm going to move through it in this way, and I'm going to end on this framing. That, to me, is a well-executed shot. And as still, obviously, you're looking for the decisive moment that you can freeze in time to communicate to your audience. Mitch, what are your thoughts about this? Um, since he's still uh, background, I would say do a storyboard because you can uh, map out the images and the direction and the choreography quite easily. Yeah, and all that planning is is very, very helpful because if you know kind of the, the arc of the story you're trying to tell, you can... Uh, you can plot it out. Let me, let me, I'm going to go ahead and, and dive back into my slides here. I wanted to at least get one question in beforehand, but let me kind of break down all of them. Um, I'm going to show you the ones, uh, and let's just talk about what these camera moves are. Everybody knows them. Uh, the first one is a pan left to right. That's an illustration of kind of what happens. The second one, uh, a tilt up or down. That's both of those moves happen on a pivot point, on, usually on top of a tripod, right? Uh, zoom is a little different in that that is a thing that is done by the camera lens setting. So 
we're going to consider it as part of these moves, but it's really kind of a, a traditional cinematographer would probably say this is outside of their thing because they don't usually zoom. But we have pan tilt zoom heads and uh more of this is automated and they're used constantly. Dolly is moving the camera physically toward or away from the subject that you're shooting. So dolly in and dolly out are typical camera move calls. Uh, trucking is moving the camera horizontally in front of a subject. And pedestal is the traditional term for moving the camera up or down. That is probably the least used of all of these. So here is my conception of when I started teaching this stuff and designed this lesson, I thought, if you're saying something to your audience, what are you saying? And it and will understanding that help you understand whether or not to do it? So here's my thoughts on what these things mean. A pan basically means look over here, I want to show you something interesting. If there's nothing interesting that you're going to show them to the right or the left of the shot you currently have, there is no justification for panning. In other words, I'm going to tell them when I make this move, if I do a tilt, the same thing. Look up here or look down here. I want to show you something interesting. This is how the camera operator is communicating with the audience. In terms of zooms, it becomes in the context of this framing, I want you to concentrate on this object by zooming into it. And the reverse of that is that if you're starting with a close-up, you can put that object into the context of the shot by zooming out. So you are directing the eye of the person. Um, a zoom out essentially says it exists in this environment. This is where this thing I just showed you is. The dolly moves are, I think, very interesting. And this is, you're kind of joining your audience. You're saying, let's both take a closer or farther look at this. You are inviting your audience to change their perspective along with you as the camera operator. So it's less passive and more active. And the truck is the same thing. You know, let's both go and look at something over here. And you often see these like in a Woody Allen movie or something like that, where two characters are walking along and talking and you're joining them in their dialogue by your point of view camera walking along with them. The pedestal is a little weirder in that Normally, we don't get a chance to be taller or shorter, but it is basically saying to your audience, let's examine this from a different perspective. So to me, that is kind of the language of a talking camera. When you're going to decide to do something for me, the critical thing is, does the shot pay off? If I'm standing in and with my camcorder and I'm looking at a lighthouse and I pan right and I'm panning at the sea... If my goal is that the to just to show them the lighthouse is next to the sea, I'm not sure if that's a particularly good move. Now, if the lighthouse is here and there's a storm at sea or something like that, then, you know, look, the lighthouse is there to protect against that. That I can see as being a reasonable move. But I have seen so many people who are who are beginning camera operators start with a decent shot and then they've panned off to something that is completely useless. It's like just a boring, dull shot. It's gotten less interesting rather than more interesting. And you just want to go, why did you do that? What was the point of moving from an interesting view to a non-interesting move? You should have just shot it as a shot, leave it alone, find another shot that's interesting. 
rather than thinking that moving the camera is a substitute for framing interesting stuff. Uh, so that that was my theory originally. And boy, it served me well, because every time I start to make a camera move, I'm going, what am I moving to? Why am I doing this? And if I can't articulate that why in the context of what I just explained, I'm just going to leave the shot as a static shot. Uh, let's go down to the next question and ask, answer a couple of questions in here before we move on. And it comes from Courtney Gooden in Hollywood, California. If the director asked for a Mickey Rooney, what camera move should you do? <laughs> I, I'm going to say, well, let's, let's let Mitchell and then Courtney. Uh, Mitchell, what are your thoughts? You have to put a call out for a short Irish guy. Um, that's for starters. <laughs> Mickey Rooney and, or uh, Billy Moomy. Take the, uh, the camera and move very slowly. I think that's it. Courtney? Yeah, it's a, a, a very slow move in, sometimes called a short creep. <laughs> Anybody who's ever worked with Mickey Rooney knows uh, keep it working. He's no longer with us. There, there, there is peace. something to be said, though. Hey, rest this, in peace. <laughs> the speed at which Anyone any of these Mickey. moves take place, I'm going to try to avoid a, getting a nasty letter from the estate of Mr. Rooney. Um, I, the speed at which you execute these moves is pretty critical. And that's a decision as a camera operator you're going to have to make. Uh, watch sometimes. Most of these camera moves take place in serious movie uh, movie making much slower than you would otherwise think. Very seldom do you get fast pans, and in fact, there is an uh, there is an exception to that. But I'll talk about it in a second. Uh, and most of the time, the reason that we invest so much in good camera support equipment like tripods with seriously good fluid heads is because it allows us to put just the right amount of drag so that you can make a very, very slow pan that kind of incrementally exposes what's over here that also looks really cool or gets us to the lighthouse in the frame or whatever you're trying to do as a, as a shot executor. Uh, slow and less obvious is usually a good thing. Now, there's another kind of a pan called a whip pan, which is almost like a special effects where you take a camera that's pointed in one direction and you move it very quickly over to the other direction. And those are kind of fun. Uh, it adds a lot of energy to a shot. You see them often in music videos and things like that. You even see fake ones where they start with a shot and then they do some sort of blurred transition to the next shot. Uh, you can kind of fake that in electronics. But um, that is more a transition between shots kind of effect than it is executing the entire shot. Courtney, you had more thoughts? Uh, it doesn't have anything to do with my Mickey Rooney question, but the uh, but you brought up something is, is the deliberate uh, the deliberate mo camera move that's designed to uh, add to the drama. And uh, you know, if you look at the movies of Frank Darabont, who wrote and directed you know Shawshank Redemption, Green Mile, and a few other great films. Uh, and analyze that film because the camera is constantly moving and it's constantly moving to motivate the drama in the scene. It'll be doing a slow push in as there's a Morgan Freeman voiceover and you're seeing the, the pathos on the, on the actor's face start to start to come in. There's no words or dialogue happening. And the camera move is what adds to the drama of the scene. And every camera move is well motivated and uh, adds to the emotional impact of the scene. In fact, if you want to see something, read something funny, search for uh, Frank Darabont's uh, leaked emails on The Walking Dead. He was so upset 
with the camera, seeing dailies. He wrote and directed some of that first season on The Walking Dead. It, you can find it on uh, Variety. It's uh, if you watch, saw the original uh, emails, they're not suitable for work because he gets quite explicit in his instructions on firing the C camera operator because he's shaking the camera all over the place, and he, he's saying that he wrote he wrote into the dialogue into the script how the you know how the camera should move how it should be covered and by gosh you better pay attention to every comma in that script and every instruction because that's how he wants it shot and uh, so it's very purposeful and he takes all of that into account even when he's writing the dialogue yeah um people take this stuff very seriously because a pan that's too fast or jarring that takes you out of the acting, the, the the content, and pulls you back into watching how the movie is made is a is a is a break. And you know the whole point of movies, the whole point of content really, is this thing we call suspension of disbelief. You know, when you can make something that people can start watching, and they kind of wake up at the end having learned something, and we're not involved in the step by step, but just accepted it as you took them through a subject. That's really what we're all aiming for as editors or shooters or anything else is to get them focused on the ideas that you're presenting and leave them there. And all these little subtle things. And, and I think uh, Courtney articulated it beautifully. You know, that little push in on somebody who's in an emotional state. Um, that is the human life equivalent of moving closer to somebody, making you know your perspective on them more intimate. We learn from being tiny, tiny people that when you pick up a baby and hug it, you're bringing it closer to you. Uh, you know, when you fall in love for the first time and go in for your first legitimate kiss, you're moving closer to people. It makes it more close, more personal, and that is a perspective that is very intimate. And because of that, directors understand that. And usually, you know, that kissing scene between two actors who are in a relationship is shot very close because it exposes the intimacy of that. You very seldom get, you know, that shot from the other side of the room if it's supposed to be truly an intimate moment between two characters. So, yeah, um, very interesting stuff. Let's go on to the next question. Next question coming in from Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana. Jib or gibberish? What's your go-to resource for teaching kids the lingo? Had a 16-year-old man think I was being funny when I said we needed to set up a boom with the jib. He answered, our captain. <laughs> well, you know, th this industry is absolutely notable for a tremendous amount of jargon. Often it's because you need shorthands on sets to be able to work efficiently. And, you know, I can say, bring me a Mole Richardson 6K um, instrument and a scrim on it, but you know, you'll hear somebody scream, give me a blonde and a grid, and they move on. And it's it's that jargon that has shorthanded uh for efficiency on a set. And if you don't understand the shorthand, um, you know, often it's easy to miss, you know, it it's it it seems like a a a foreign environment when you first get on a set because there's just so much of that going on. But these are people who have worked together usually for uh, months, if not years. And I think in every community like that, shorthand language becomes uh, key to things. Mitchell, you want to weigh in on the uh, the film industry has been driven by tradition for a very long time. So there's a lot of terms that have come up from the uh, dim reaches of history 
uh, that still seem to uh, seem to work. Um, there's some questions that are coming up that we'll talk about, but um, I think it's uh, it, it, it's interesting to keep it in a perspective that a lot of these terms are very very old terms. They are, and, and you know, when you ask why is why did they call it truck, and and you know, somewhere on a set early in the process. In order to do that, with big cameras, with Hollywood cameras, in order to do any kind of move and keep it steady, you don't have the tools we have today. And they used to have to set up something like a Fisher dolly, which is an extraordinarily heavy monster piece of gear. Often it would be mounted on tracks or rails on the ground. And so a crew of three or four people may have to work two or three hours getting set up for a single shot with this large a heavy dolly with a big Panavision camera on top of it. So once you did all that, it was mission critical to get the shot just right. And um, thankfully, those things were built to such a high precision technical standard that getting a smooth shot on a well set up dolly to do a truck left or truck right was a long involved process. So you wanted the shot to be beautiful, well executed. And, you know, you had these specialists like Dolly Grips and things like that, whose job was just to make sure that all the movements happened correctly. The cinematographer was there, you know, maybe riding along with the Dolly, but making sure that the camera was pointed exactly where they wanted, had the right leading zone for the actors walking along. It's a, it's a ballet and it's a complicated thing. Now we have much less expensive tools. We now have little jibs and handheld things, and we can get pretty close to some of those shots. So it's important to know. But you know, when you're holding a draw, dolly and a director says, okay, I like the shot, truck right. And you don't know what they mean by that. You don't understand what they're trying to communicate to you. Things break down. And you have to stop for a moment and, and have it explained to you, which is not good on set when you might with all the actors and crew and everything be burning that tens or hundreds of thousands, sometimes even with Hollywood A-listers, millions of dollars an hour for the time of all the people involved in that and their salaries being so high. Courtney, you had thoughts? Yeah, it drives me nuts is when I'm on the set, I know there's a new director that's new into the industry if they're telling me things like, well, I want the camera to tilt right or, <laughs> <laughs> or pan down. And then uh, pan in to a close-up, and you, you go, hmm, right. This guy's didn't even pay attention in film school that he yeah. just graduated from. And uh, there's, well, that's because he's probably just out of high school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's there's tons of terms that are used for uh, shot size, like a cowboy. Yeah, explain that one. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, two Ts or, uh, you know, describing the shot size uh, besides the short creep and the... <laughs> The, the MCU and all the rest down. of it. Yes, you have to tell the director. No, pan is horizontal movement. Tilt is vertical movement. <sighs> well, that's why we go over these basic stuff. Hopefully, this will keep you up to date. Mitch, you know, and the truck is work. moving the dolly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, no, you don't have to go to Toys R Us to get one. Mitch? <laughs> I can't believe he got two T's in there. Okay. I don't think I can top that one. Uh, there are a lot of new uh, phrases, too, like stunt camera. You know, because yeah. back in the day, you didn't toss cameras out. But crash stunt cam. camera's the thing. Yeah, yeah. crash cam. Yeah. Give me an expendable. Give me that. that The camera that I was lusting after and trying to save up money for it. They're considering it the same uh, expendables as a roll of gaffer's tape. Well, sometimes you get up in those rarefied budgets, and actually that kind of stuff happens. Uh, let's go on to the next question. From David Brady in New York, New York, please discuss and give examples of the Dolly Zoom. 
its history and aesthetic uses. Okay, so let's talk about the the two things, right? We talked about dollying and being able to move the camera on some kind of mobile platform, whether it's on wheels or on a, uh, a uh, some sort of base that has movability to it. So you're moving in toward an object and that has a particular aesthetic look if you ever get a comparison between dollying towards something and zooming in towards something there's a lot of the optics involved and the shots look different well somebody figured out and maybe courtney knows the first film they did it on i know hitchcock used it and some other people use it where they would both move the camera and zoom simultaneously and it is a bit of a disorienting feeling um, because two different optical things are happening. You're moving towards something, but you're also zooming either in or more often you're moving toward it, but zooming out. And it has a perspective warping kind of, uh, effect that is really singular and looks very interesting. Courtney thoughts about that. Yeah. Spielberg has a tendency to put it in most of his films. He put it in his very first, uh, theatrical feature, which was Sugarland Express. Uh, I will play a sample of it here, not full screen, so that you can see it. Uh, I can click on it. Oh, here it's over here. You can see the perspective changing as the guy on the left holds a consistent size, but it it uh, compresses the perspective to see the car coming in on the background there. So Excellent that's, example. Uh, and he used it also in Jaws. Uh, there's a famous scene where Roy Scheider is sitting on the beach and they are dollying back and zooming in at the same time. And so they're compressing the backgrounds, background in. So you see the people behind him come up, but he stays the same size in the foreground. Uh, so he's used it in a number of films. And uh, he discovered it, and I think, in film school and decided he wanted to use it in Sugarland Express. Mitchell? Hitchcock. Very famous move. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of ways you can do it, but it has a, and you just saw the perspective shift. I mean, normally if you were zooming, you would be zooming past the gunman in the window on that shot. And so the combination of the camera pulling back while you're zooming in is what gives you that, that odd perspective. Let's move on to the next question. Next question in from Douglas Carmichael. Are there different camera terms used in the U S and UK? Mitchell, you want to start us off? Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's been a thing for a long time, and a lot of them have sort of migrated over to uh, this particular coast. Uh, my favorite is Focus Puller. That made its way from the U.K. over here. Yeah, there, there's a variety of them. I mean, uh, director of photography in America is often referred to as a lighting cameraman in uh, the British system. There, there are a variety of things. I mean, the the jobs remain the same, but the language is slightly different. And I've even heard, uh, not so much in photography terms, but in grip gear and stuff like that, I've even heard differences on the east and west coasts of the United States. There would be one term for... Uh, one colloquial term on the set for something. And, you know, somebody asked for an X, I can't think of an example right now. Uh, somebody asked for a stinger here and it's something else over there. Um, this is fluid and there are different crews who have different experiences under different things. And, you know, before there weren't a lot of film schools in the early days as Hollywood was growing up and everybody was kind of reinventing this for themselves. Each time there was a lot of filmmaking in the very early days in New York before Chicago uh, and got involved. And then uh, of course the LA film industry grew like crazy in the 1920s and beyond. So um, there, there are some regional differences here, Courtney. 
know, the one I had to get used to when working with British directors was they don't say roll camera or, or roll sound. They go turnover. Turnover. <laughs> Apple and or I, peach? First time that happened, I went, what? Huh? Turnover what? <laughs> the next page of the script? Is that what? We're, no. oh, yeah. oh, roll. That's what you mean. And there is actually a cadence on most fancy sets uh, of checking two or three things. You know, it's not just, okay, action. There's like <laughs> speed and, and you know, audio is checked with, and there's two or three ways on a set that every department checks in to make sure that everybody is ready to go before the usually assistant director. It's not usually the director doing it. But it says, okay, action. And the actual performance of the scene takes place. Um, it's, it's, you know, these are habits, but boy, the last thing you want to do is get the perfect take and find out that sound wasn't rolling. That is not good. So before you hear speed and the rest of those things, you want to make sure that you hold off on, on getting to action. Next question. From Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana, what descriptive framing terms have you heard used commonly? There was a circumstance where apple boxes were used to bring up the leading man's stature for a commercial I was working on, and the older actor used a term I can't remember. Uh, oh, what's the actor's a very famous uh, actor in the early days was oh, Mitch. Mitch has it. Mitch, dive in. They call it a tall maker. Well, no, that's what our what our dear friend who just left us. Uh, no, it wasn't Audie Murphy. It was somebody of that era who was not particularly tall of stature, but was a very famous Hollywood leading man. And um, ah, why is it escaping me now? Probably because that was when I, I was know. Really yeah, we shouldn't continue to pick on Mickey Rooney. I think that no, was, it was, it was Alan Ladd. Alan, Alan Ladd, Ladd. That's right. Yeah. Alan Ladd. They used to have to uh, actually, if they had a walk and talk scene with Alan Ladd with an actress, they had to dig a ditch so she could walk in the ditch next to him. Cause either that, or they had to build a runway, what they call a runway, which is a bunch of apple boxes and, and plywood on it. So that the short actor could walk and be as tall as his leading ladies as he walked along and, and he couldn't use, you know, elevator boots. You see, getting to the first rule of movie making, in my opinion, it doesn't have to be real, just has to look real. <laughs> there's a good example when you're digging a trench, you know, and, and I, I will say this, if, if any of you are young or uh, uh, want to be actors or actresses out there, and you go through this casting process, which is vicious. I mean, it's just very difficult because you're being judged on you, right? So you're out there and you get, you're in a room with 10 other actors or 10 other actresses, and they're trying to figure out, and you want the job and you don't know why you're getting, you know, you're not getting picked this month or you, maybe luckily you still haven't been picked. You want to get picked. These kinds of things are discussions that often happen in the production room. You know, I really like her, but she's four inches off on that. That means we're going to have to deal with that every shot. We have another actress who's just about equivalent, but is a better match in this pairing. And I've, boy, on photo shoots and on video shoots, I've heard those discussions happening. It, it's not always about your talent, your look, your lack of talent, or anything like that. It can be these odd little things that cause a casting uh, decision to be made either for you or against you, and there's often nothing you can do. So my my suggestion to all the actresses and models I've ever worked with who've been in, who've expressed to me that frustration about why am I not getting more roles, you, you, you never know. You never know. You know, for a while, tall actresses uh, are all the rage, and then you get very uh, actresses of, of much less stature, and that becomes popular for a while. Who knows? It's just all kind of crazy. Next question. 
Arshid Trivedi from Daytona Beach, Florida, and right here on our panel asked, as a child visiting the earthquake ride at Universal Studios, they show an example of how they created a fiery explosion. However, it was done on a small model with almost matches like fire. What kind of cam work did they do to capture this effect? Mitch, start us off. Oh, I know what they call it now. I don't know what they might have called it then. Uh, it could be a macro or a snorkel cam. One has a yeah, very a long lens that, that goes yeah. in and shoots the uh, the shot from a distance. Yeah, force perspective is a huge deal in this. Courtney? Yeah, there was a lens uh, that was a relay lens called a Fraser lens that they would use for a while, which lets you, it, it had a snorkel with a prism and a drop down. And so you could put it right, uh, the actual, uh, it made the camera be so, like something that was only about an inch or two across. So you could get down on a tabletop shooting miniatures and dolly in with it. And it had an infinite depth of field. So it made everything look, you know, small things look much bigger because uh, everything was in focus rather than if you get down and get a macro lens, then you'll notice that your depth of field changes radically and and stuff in the background looks out of focus and, and makes it look like a miniature. So um, they use something like a snorkel lens or a Fraser lens to do that. And fire is, you know, a lot of times they will use miniature explosions. There are certain chemicals that special effects men use to uh, create uh, miniature flames that look uh, more realistic and they create black smoke and a lot of billowing flames on a very small scale. Um, in fact, some of it is that stuff you use to treat pimples with. Really? Benzoyl peroxide, yes. Oh, they use that to actually uh, burn that to, to create the miniature special effects flame. Nice. Uh, uh, Hershey. Yeah, I just had a comment. Thank you for that. That's exactly what they did. They had a miniature uh, layout that they sh basically saw a film beforehand before you got into the ride. And then they raise the screen up and they just show you this miniature and you see a bunch of smoke and, you know, it's, I think it's L.A. or what have you. And uh, as you meant, that's really interesting to know. It's that camera that uh, gives you that effect of a big explosion because of the building shaking or gas lines exploding and stuff like that. So thanks. Well, and here on the show, we spent some time with Alex on uh, the Star Wars sets where they did the Death Star and things like that. And that's all miniatures photography and, and beautifully executed to the point where it started a gigantic worldwide phenomenon. They, um, also, they also shoot slow-mo. They shoot, they speed up the camera so that... Uh, uh, Things that are moving in the frame move slower, so they seem bigger. Yeah, we tend to call that overcranked in the industry. Uh, let me do a couple more little thoughts here uh, from my presentation. Uh, I want to talk about executing shots because we've been talking about um, moving the camera. And whenever you move the camera, you really do have a, an issue with shot execution. You, it, you know, all camera shots, in my thinking, have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And this is one of the areas where it completely it differs from still photography, where you're looking for that executable moment because uh, – you're not going to have a perfect moment always in the beginning of your shot. I can, I've can i used the example of uh, if you're going to be opening a door to reveal a character coming through, the first shot is not going to be that beautiful shot. It's a blank door. But if as soon as you cut to that shot, the door opens and action continues, it can be just as compelling as starting on the first shot. So uh, I always ask myself these questions. Uh, I have to figure out where do I want to start this sequence? Where do How do I want to get there? At what speed? And through what path do I want to execute? And most importantly to me is where I want to end up. To me, this is where most moving camera shots fail. Is it, and you can cut away from a shot in action. There's nothing wrong with that. And it's done all the time. But it 
it has a certain effect on the viewer if they're if you're taking them somewhere and suddenly you stop them and you make them go someplace else. Um, I just think it's very important to plan this out if you are a video if you're making videos and you're trying to communicate really well with your audience, know for each shot that you're going to execute, excuse me, uh, where you think it's best to start, the speed and or path you want to take to get to where it's going to end, but most importantly, where it's going to end so that you end on something, particularly for your editor, so that they know when the shot is there and they have a little bit of tail that they can decide how fast they want to get out of the shot or linger on it, depending on what happened during the scene itself. Um, next question. Next question in from Josh Kaufman at Pittsburgh, PA. Similar versus contrasting camera moves in succession. Do similar moves, zoom, pan, etc., tie parallel thoughts together? When to use contrasting moves versus parallel moves? Is there a rule? And if so, when can it be broken? Well, I don't think there, you know, it, it depends on the flow of the ideas. We've seen videos made where the camera starts out on a subject and then starts panning and the next person comes in and then you keep going through a whole series of people and that continuous motion around uh, what feels like a round table. Uh, a lot of music videos use that quite effectively. There's other times when uh, panning right for one character or panning left to show another one. I, I used to talk about creating presentations and i used a variation of this technique so that when i was showing the main presenter on camera they were here the transition i used to the next shot was a push slide to the right but every time i push slide to the right i would show a diagram of something and then i would move from that back to the center and then a push slide to the left would show an actuality in other words actors showing that scene and then i'd come back to the center and by figuring out that move progression, I hoped I, to help my audience understand when we go this way, you're about to see a diagram and they'd be kind of mentally prepared for that. And then we'd always come back. And when we go the other side, you're about to see that, that thing. So you're building a language with your audience. And that's the same way I see about, I thought about most of these moves. Um, so do you need consistency? Do you need to fulfill your audience's expectations about what happens when you move right? Is that part of your thinking about this? Do you want to confuse them a little? And there are techniques for confusing your audience. We talked a little bit about crossing the line, and that is, uh, you know, when you're on, when you're shooting from the audience on stage, the person who's moving on from their left to right on stage looks to you in the audience as if they're moving from right to left. You take a camera, move it upstage so that you're shooting from behind the performer out to the audience. All those directions change. So um, there's some, and that can momentarily confuse the audience if you don't somehow telegraph to them that you're moving in a different direction. And all these things make a shot either comfortable or unsettling to the audience. And it's a tool you can use to do that. Courtney. Yeah. The camera moves like that are, are, and crossing the line is to give you a sense of space to establish, even though you may only have three walls in your set, it'll establish a sense of space uh, for the audience to know where they are in the room and where the other actors are in the room. And um, crossing the line is a, a is a lot of times what's used doing a camera move where you move counter to the actor's move, the actor's moving left 
in the space and the camera's moving right. It's to change its perspective, to shift its perspective from one side of the room to the other side of the room. And it does that with a counter move so that the other, the other actor that the actor is talking to comes into frame uh, as they move counter to the camera move. So a lot of times those contrapuntal camera moves are used to get uh, actors to cross the room and let the camera cross the line uh, so that you change the position of the two actors to each other uh, within the room. And it lets you see the other side of the room a lot of times. And to understand how important this is, I mean, we all enjoyed watching uh, Chris Fenwick's examples of the stuff from A Star is Born, but you'll notice that both of those cameras were on the same stage left side shooting the two people. And that was there that, you know, you didn't suddenly see them over on the other side unless there's something motivated where we're going over to the other side. And, you know, if you watch that and break down, they will orient you, a good director, good editor will orient you so that you know kind of where you're watching it from. And if you're doing something like a crazy, wacky slasher film or something, they will disorient you by breaking these rules to get you off balance. So you're not quite sure who is this? What are they doing? Is this the bad guy? Is this the, the other hero coming to save our principal? What's going on there? All of these things are technique that a good a good director, good person blocking the scene employees to help tell the story correctly. Next question. Next question in from Sky Gleason in Seattle, Washington. Can you please discuss DOP versus the camera operator? Sure. Uh, Courtney, you want to take a shot at it first? Then? Sure. There are different union positions. The director of photography is head of the uh, in charge of the look of the film, setting the camera angle, you know, in cooperation with the director to some degree, but choosing the lens, setting the camera uh, position, uh, dictating any camera movement that's going to happen during the shot. Uh, you know, a lot of times lighting, the director of photography will also uh, have say over the lighting along with his gaffer who will be actually performing the electrical <laughs> manipulation of the lights to the director of photography's request. The camera operator is the person that's actually panning and tilting the camera uh, and uh, and carrying out the uh, instructions of the director of photography. Sometimes the director of photography will actually operate the camera. And sometimes they have to obtain a waiver from the union to do that if you're displacing a camera operator. So a lot of times you will have a camera operator. And if you have a DP who likes to operate, that camera operator will be pushed over to B camera or be over at the craft service table a lot. So uh, there are two different distinct positions within the film industry. Uh, sometimes they overlap if you get a director of photography who likes to operate. Yeah. And I'll just go further than that. I, it's one of the most, I think director of photography DOP is one of the most misused terms in our industry. And it comes from the fact that cameras are so widely available in the traditional Hollywood uh, system. Everybody knew, and not just Hollywood, but world filming. And everybody knew what the director of photography or the lighting cameraman, that is a supervisory position who is responsible for the aesthetics of each shot in the film as it takes place. And they may or may not be an operator or uh, do that, but it, but it is an aesthetic responsibility. They're supposed to be concentrating on the artistry, not the mechanics of executing each shot. Sadly, with the world of, uh, oh, I got my new Blackmagic camera and I want to get a bunch of my friends together and make a video, um, 
you know, people think that means, well, you're directing the photography on your little resume film, so you're a DOP. And it kind of devalues the serious study and time that it takes for a true director of photography to understand so much of the technical uh, parts that are critical to making a, a film look great. Uh, you know, understanding of the aesthetics of different lenses, uh, understanding all the things we're talking about today in terms of movement and how shots get executed, uh, understanding the interplay of a particular lens array, a particular camera sensor, and the lighting and how it works. Um, all of that is the realm of a serious director of photography who will spend most of their career coming up through the ranks to ascend to that level where they're an expert in all of those areas so they can truly direct all the crews, all the uh, A, B, C units, whoever's out there, second unit, first, second, third units. Um, it's a it's a position of that should be highly respected. And I hate seeing sometimes when, you know, the 22 show, oh, yeah, I'm the director of photography for this film. Well, maybe you've done most of those things, but you certainly didn't study at all if you're using a single camera with a zoom lens. Uh, and if you think, if you're putting yourself out as that, I often worry you're going to get in a situation where you're way beyond your, your understanding, but that's just my feeling about it. Uh, Mitchell. By the way, it's usually referred to as DP. That's true. DP deal. in America. Yeah. Not director of photography. That's a technical term, but DP is the shorthand. Yes, absolutely. Next question. Rob Collins in Kansas City, Missouri asks, are there any special terms when a camera is on a mobile platform, such as a drone, RC car? Or a crane, Mitchell. Always call it camera car. It may also not be. A, it might be a dolly being pulled by a camera, but always ends up being camera car in my lexicon. Yeah, and this is also one of those things where I'm not sure that the, the modern parlance is is giving us more trouble because if you're in a if you're flying a drone, and somebody says truck right to you, uh, are you? Is that just? Is that different than a? bank right is that i i don't know if there's i don't know if that language maybe drone operators who do this a lot maybe they've come up with a language for that because there's six or seven different ways to move from right to left in the way that a ground-based system would truck right uh that i'm not sure if they all apply to somebody flying i think it's fair to say there are different categories of yeah. something that's moving I think the different operator. And so they may be developing a language for the moves for a flying camera. It would be wise, I think, if they were to, so that we could talk about the same things. But I don't do much of that, so I don't know. Courtney, your thoughts? Yeah, I hear the term swoop a lot of time mentioned in drone shots. Yeah. Swooping in, swooping out. There Other than that, it's it's basically, you know, coming in, coming down, you know. Uh, camera moves, crane moves. It's like arm down or, or boom down. Um, you know, swoop can be used on the, uh, with the fact of a drone, uh, and these new, I'm seeing a lot of these new POV drone shots in a lot of films to get from one location to another location. I think the bond film used the most recent bond film used some of those that are, uh, quite startling, uh, when the camera is just flying at a million miles an hour through, through doorways and down hallways and up and out and over, uh, it's yeah, I think we have to thank YouTube for that. I remember since that bowling alley film with the camera literally going behind the pins and in and out of the whole thing. I think a lot of people woke up with uh, some of those things and said, well, we don't have to stick with the shots we've always had traditionally when we were so ground-based. It's very cool. Uh, next question. We're going to try to dive through as many of these as we can in the next 10 minutes. Sky Gleason, Seattle, Washington. Every industry has its own lexicon. What is the cowboy shot? 
I know the martini shot, but I'm not familiar with that. Uh, is uh, Courtney? Do you? Do anybody else in the thing? I would hope you would answer this because I, <laughs> I think cowboy is just at the top of the guns, you know, where a cowboy would hold his gun. So it was a waist high shot just to the top of the hat. That's what yeah. I always thought of cowboy. I vaguely was. heard it, but I never really had to execute one, and I never really studied it. So I don't know. It must have its own, you know. Um, there are certain traditions like the second to last shot of the day being called the martini shot and things like that. Nobody knows where they came from. You just hear those things on set. And, you know, what does this crew mean by that? Uh, it, it, it's, it, this is not a precise thing. There's all sorts of, uh, if you go online and look for filmmaking jargon, you're going to find 3,500 different sources. And most of it is the same, but not all of it. Let's go to the next one. Sky Gleason again from Seattle, Washington. Why is wide, medium, close shots used to establish and tell the story through the two dimensions of film? Well, okay. So uh, wide shots, uh, sometimes called establishing shots as well. The function of them is to set the scene. Where are we? You know, so the outside of the bowling alley might be your establishing shot. And then the next shot inside, even if you can't see the lanes, you're just seeing two characters talking at a table, the establishing shot, the wide shot helps orient you as to where you are. Then uh, medium shots tend to be groups talking, two people talking, things like that. And these are kind of imprecise, but they generally uh, waist up or something like that, maybe feet up in certain circumstances is a medium shot. Although I've heard people say that Anything where you can see a whole figure top to bottom as a wide shot. Close-ups, obviously, you're starting to get to the point where it's head and shoulders up. And an extreme close-up can be that that just a shot of someone's eyes or something like that. They're generally uh, pretty fluid terms. And to me, the width of the wide shot determines kind of what is a medium shot and what's a close-up. You can usually tell them by looking at them, but um, I'm not sure. There's no... No table of a wide shot is only uh, shows you six feet across or something like that. Uh, Courtney, your thoughts? Anything more? Than yeah, the wide shot, as you said, is to not only establish your position as the camera or as the audience's position, but it establishes all the actors in the scene and where they are relative to each other. Because without knowing that, if you just cut from a close-up to close-up, you would you'd know that one actor is looking at the other actor, but you don't know where that other actor is, you know. Uh, if if they're not establishing eye contact with each other, so if they're if one actor is doing something and there's somebody behind him sneaking up on him, you know, uh, you have to cut to a wide shot to see the relationship of that person who's sneaking up behind him to that actor, so that you know, oh, that guy is sneaking up on somebody. He's not in front of him or he's not beside him. He's behind him. So that gives you a, a real world reference to positions of everybody. And once you establish where everybody is, then you can cut to the close ups so that the audience isn't confused as to where they are, where the actors are in relationship to each other. Yeah, hopefully that helps. I think that's a pretty good ex explanation of why. I will say that, you know, there's a lot of different kinds of camera work. So, uh, you know, a, a gigantic scenic shot that tries to uh, inform a panorama, uh, it is a wide shot, but it is a very different framing than a wide shot of a stage play where you want to see the entire proscenium arch and where, the, the as Courtney was saying, where all the characters are in relation to each other. So um, they're all fluid like that. Let's go to the next question. Josh Kaufman, Pittsburgh, PA, asked Shaky Cam, its origin, proper use case, and its misuse. Take off, Mitchell. Go ahead. 
Um, for me, I mean, it's my opinion uh, that generally it's not a term of endearment because it means somebody's not doing a very good job of uh, holding a steady shot with a handheld camera. But I can imagine there are some situations where you need to simulate, uh, you know, some kind of severe turbulence or something else, and they would have to shake the camera or bounce it around a little bit to get that effect. Um, it's it's more of a term that I've seen used more recently than a traditional Hollywood term. Courtney? It came into popularity in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, where directors wanted to have something different than the standard two-shot, over-the-shoulder, wide-shot, you know, cut back and forth with the close-ups. So they went to this handheld stuff, and it it gave the uh, – I, I worked with so many directors. I want the camera to have more edge to it. I want it edgy. And I, I was doing a commercial with Bilbo Sigmund, famous cinematographer. And we were at lunch, and he's going, you know, I had the – had a director the other day said said oh we we don't want to use you you don't have enough edgy edge I can I can shake the camera he <laughs> 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 was incensed that uh, you know famous famous cinematographer used a lot of very big Academy Award winning films and yeah. uh, they wouldn't use him they passed over him because he couldn't he wasn't shaking the camera enough and it can be misused uh, and it is Friday Night Lights look I couldn't even watch that series because it was all handheld shaky cam yeah and they they use it to add. Uh, you know, drama, intensity, uh, edginess, a- anxiousness to the film of the camera. What I hate is when the camera, somebody's talking and the camera will needlessly pan down to their hands or something and back up. And their hands don't have anything to do with it. It's just to keep the frame moving and, and uh, to add uh, a series, you know, a, a sequence of immediacy to the shot. It's used to make dramatic scripted films look like documentaries. You know, that's a lot of times that we use uh, shaky cam for that purpose. Uh, it's used to give it a documentary feel. So you make it feel more real than than actors portraying lines written by somebody. Yeah. And, and famously, I think it got a lot of popularity during the Blair Witch Project era because they were trying to tell you that this was a bunch of kids who'd gotten a hold of a camcorder. And the, you know, and the slasher film was all about this is people running around in the forest with a camera and not being good camera people. And in that respect. I will say it worked very effectively because you thought you didn't think this is being done by a crew. You thought you were watching somebody that grabbed a camera and ran through the forest trying to get away from the bad guys. And so uh, it, it's an aesthetic choice. I'm going to I'm going to slip on to next. We've got what four or five. We got seven more questions and we're already four minutes for the top of the hour. So we're going to move on. So let's just get to the next one. Craig McFarlane from Boston, Massachusetts. What are the biggest considerations for live shows when the camera work can't be pre-planned and react to the event? Mitch? I only have my own name. I call it video Cuisinart. Ah, I, I, you know, good camera operators in live events uh, search for things and they look for things. I've done this a couple of times and I'll, uh, one of my finest moments in being a camera operator for the brief time that I did it was... Uh, I was shooting on stage and there was a piano player there and I thought, you know, it's so polished and nice. I'm going to kind of go off to this weird thing where I'm seeing the reflection of the piano player. And then there's a lot of negative black space and screamed into my ear was camera two, hold that. And I just, I sat, had to sit there on this thing forever. But then he went to a composite of my shot with the reflection of the performer in the camera lid and two or three other things matted onto it. And it was a beautiful composition. So you, you just, you know, 
live show camera work, the people who can think that way are really to be respected. And sometimes you don't want just, you know, close up medium and wide shots. Sometimes you're going to try to find that odd angle that they can turn into something special. Mitch, real quick and Courtney, real quick. Um, I'll pass to Courtney. Okay, Courtney. In my early years as a camera operator, if you have a good director and you're doing television, you can preview a move. I'll show a camera move while not on the air to the director. I'll do it. And he sees it on the monitor that is not on the air. And he'll go, oh. And so you do a little job of selling a move to the director, which you can do right before, you know, and he'll see it and say, oh, that's great. Uh, set that shot up and we'll, we'll come to you. Absolutely. And uh, he'll do that kind of a move. Yeah, which is nice because it gives, you know, the camera operators and the, the steady cam people and everybody else some autonomy to look for things. They're really good at what they do. They know what they can do. Uh, next question. Stefan Fischer from Wurzburg, Germany. Cameras on sliders are common in an interview situation for a shot from the side showing the talent or the interviewer. Is there a use for a slider in a format like office hours? Uh, sometimes uh, slider shots are very interesting because they can reveal that kind of depth perspective. Even us, I'm surprised that sometimes even a three foot or a four foot slider, uh, if you can set it up so that there's something in the foreground and then something at distance, you get that kind of parallax of things moving that can make for a very interesting shot. So I find sliders to be useful tools when you can. Mitchell, your thoughts? Yeah, I would use it as an establishing shot uh, to, to establish the perspective. Um, but in this program, I don't think it has a place for it. Yeah, no, we're trying to do something else. And in fact, the back end guys needing us to be in the center so they can do their compositing is probably a whole different thing. Uh, next question. David Brady, New York City. And uh, my favorite shot ever starts as a crane and then straight into a handheld. Here I go. Show ye Yenomaras pigs and battleships at about 8.48 on the timeline. There are some famous, famous shots about literally composite shots that go through a variety. Probably one of the most famous is in Orson Welles' Touch of Evil. The entire opening shot is about five minutes long and it is brilliant and it starts medium and it goes flying over buildings and it eventually ends up at the couple main couple at the border, all done as one thing, shot long overnight. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, Good directors who have a vision and have the clout to take the time to execute these things. Uh, there's another good fellows in the mother. But Courtney, your thoughts? Yeah, we talked about it earlier. The Bound for Glory shot where he steps uh, off the crane, Garrett Brown does with a steady cam and then walks into the crowd and into a close up all in one shot is pretty amazing. Yeah, nice stuff. Uh, next question. Rob Collins in Kansas City, Missouri asked, How would one move with a 360 camera? What things should be kept in mind while doing it? A uh, 360 camera. Well, that's tough. And I think we should wait until Alex gets back. To, uh, Courtney will have some thoughts on this, but uh, you know, uh, Alex actually, I was just trying to get rid of the tripod under the thing. It's it's hard to set up lighting and, and other things when you're doing 360. Courtney, your thoughts? Yeah, you got to mount the camera on top of your head. That's the only way to do it, to stay out of the shot if you're moving the camera. Uh, and it's not a good idea to move a camera, the 360 camera, because it disorients everybody because you're moving and you don't know which direction people are going to be looking. You know? Yep. Uh, next question. Ashid Trivedi in Daytona Beach, Florida, and right here on our panel. Can you remind me what the term crossing the line means? Please. Sure. The, e the easiest way to understand it is think that you're watching a stage play, right? And so if your camera's in the audience and an actor on the stage moves, you're watching this, moves from your uh, center to the 
right side from your perspective. If you were to imagine yourself walking behind them, that same actor is moving from the center to the left. And so the line is a line in front of the camera where if you move the camera past that line, directionality reverses. So it can disorient the audience because, you know, they're tap dancing in a line to the right and you cut to the camera upstage behind them and they're suddenly tap dancing to the left. All directions change when you cross the line. So that's what we're talking about with that. Next question. And it's my question, and I like this one. What was the classic camera move in fight scenes in the original Batman TV series? Pow! Mitchell, what was it? Um, it was, well, I'll let Courtney answer because it's much, much more authentic coming from him. It was the snap zoom. Yeah. That yeah. was one of them. Yeah. Uh, well, also the Dutch angle. Well, Dutch was true, too. They yeah. would tilt. Tilt the, tilt the camera at a Dutch angle, and then they do a snap zoom. A lot of and I'll give you a hint about snap zooms, sometimes called explosion zooms. You've probably seen this a lot, but if you if you execute it in the camera, so you're, you've got a medium or a wide shot, and you flip the uh, zoom lever so that all of a sudden you go from wide to very tight, very fast. If you play that back in slow motion, you get a really trippy, zoomy, uh, time tunnel kind of effect that is just really fun to watch. Okay, we've got to the end. Thank you all for bearing with us as we've gone through that. Thank you for all the excellent questions. I really appreciate you taking the time to do that. I'm looking over here, and I was so involved in the question answering that I'm not sure that I got everything that I need to say for tomorrow's shows. Uh, let's see. That's already taken care of on Friday. Uh, ruthless Reviews. So uh, this time, behind the scenes. So if you're interested as... Uh, viewers of office hours to see what our camera setups look like we are going to try to turn the cameras around on ourselves and our and our circumstances and uh, at least some of us will probably be brave enough to show you what happens behind the scenes for our rigs saturday we're talking about immersive media uh sunday as always introspection days uh let's see um tomorrow this would be tomorrow so uh, the conversation with tony movies last night is adora with l right after the show today so tune in for that burning with lois also happening. Uh, so check that out on the Birding with Lois website. Uh, Friday, they're talking about a no, that's that's today, the Friday Tech Tackle. So I was wrong right after this 915 a.m. Uh, the Friday Tech Tackle. So stick around on uh, after hours for that. Thank you. All the panelists today, thank you for your help in getting this show done. Uh, the producers, everybody who watched and uh, said, I thought we were going to be short today. And you guys have come through as always. So uh, all men, women, boys, girls, everything else, thank you for being here. Thank you for putting in your questions. Um, watch the credits at the end because those people all work really hard behind the scenes. Thank you for watching and we'll see you tomorrow. the camera does a Mickey Rooney yeah. <laughs> to a Dutch angle. <laughs> it's I remember buying two tripod heads to try to play with Dutch angles and it's not fun to try to handle two offset. Mounted and for those of you who right didn't know, a Dutch angle is when you t tilt the camera rather than on a horizon like and mess yaw. with that horizon. Yeah. Yeah. A special head for that. Well, you can buy two regular heads and just mount them at 90 degree angles. And but it makes a very top heavy, hard to wield rig. T2. I had a director used to use the Duke mount, which is they set the 
set the uh, football on top of the camera head and then the camera on top of the football. That way they could go any direction. <laughs> the Duke <laughs> mount. It was a Duke football. The Duke.